if you look at where we are culturally and the way that we consume content now, what are we doing all the time? We're on our phones. We're looking at videos. We're listening to podcasts. So think about how you can incorporate some of the things that we do in our daily private lives that we enjoy into your training programs, because that's how you appeal to my emotional side. And then you're more likely to get a change in behavior than if you just give me a form. Did I do my annual compliance training? Yes, I did. That's not what you want. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose, trust, and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Stuyason, and I'm the co-founder of Hearts Management. To say she lived a double life sounds like an understatement. At night, she was dripping with furs and jewels as a champion-winning horse breeder with over 400 horses. By day, she wore municipal clothes as the municipal treasurer in the small town of Dixon, Illinois. Rita Crundwell embezzled $53 million to finance her horse empire and lavish lifestyle while forcing staff cuts, police budget slashing, and neglect of public infrastructure. On this episode of the podcast, I talked to Kelly Richmond Pope, a recognized expert in forensic accounting and professor at DePaul University in Chicago. Beyond her academic career, Kelly is a documentary filmmaker who produced and directed the award-winning documentary All the Queen's Horses about Rita Cronwell's story, which is the largest municipal fraud in American history. I talked to Kelly about why people for so long overlooked the red flags surrounding Greta and how implicit trust in a leader might make us overlook the need for control and accountability systems. Kelly and I also discuss why a compliance mentality doesn't create an emotional connection to the values of an organization and why we need to tell stories that speak to people's hearts. So without further ado, Let's jump into this fascinating conversation with Kelly Richmond Pope. Kelly, it's really a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I was super excited to receive the invitation, so I had to respond immediately, so I'm super I'm excited. Thank you for doing that. And there are so many different directions that we could take this conversation because the the scope of your work is both incredibly fascinating and it's really broad. But I wanted to start with a bit of your story. How did you get passionate about the topics of ethical decision making, whistleblowing, fraud and, and all these other things that you've been researching and working with? Well, when I was in my PhD program at Virginia Tech is really where it all started. Uh, my research area was around ethical decision making. And um, I felt that that was a very broad area. And so I wanted to explore where decision-making goes bad. And decision-making goes bad in fraudulent transactions. So that's really what led me to looking at fraud and looking at the, the pressures that people experience when they're on the brink between making a right or wrong decision. So um, that's what started me um, investigating fraud deeper and really looking at the way people rationalize when they find themselves in those types of dilemmas. And then the whistleblowing aspect of it is really still a part of that fraud story because a lot of times 
fraud comes to light because someone has spoken up. And again, looking at more of the pressures and the rationalizations around the behaviors that motivate a person to whistleblow. So um, I was just fascinated about, about those two constructs for different reasons. I had a friend who told me that that many people within this field that they have some form of, let's say, a, a personal story. I mean, somewhere where you experience something like in, in my case, it's a it's an experience of unethical culture and of cover ups and, and things like that, that kind of led me to part of the passion for for what I do. And and I, I listened to a presentation where you, that you held where you talked about a neighbor that you had when you were really young. And I, I just thought it was such a such a such an interesting story also connected to the work that you do. Could you share a little bit of that story? When I was growing up, um, there was a neighbor of mine who on, on the outside looked extremely accomplished and successful, but yet found himself involved in a dilemma where he um, found himself in a mortgage fraud scheme. And he was he colluded with another um, business owner to engage in mortgage fraud or real estate fraud. And, and I was just shocked when his life just fell apart and he went to jail and served, I believe, seven years in federal prison. And it really is what started me to think that we should never think about it being them because it is us. Any of us are susceptible to making a bad decision, not one or two times, sometimes three times. And some of us get caught, some of us can do get caught and some of us get caught and go to jail. But that early experience showed me that how culture is so important and how ethical culture being repeatedly emphasized and nurtured is really important because the best of us can make those types of decisions. That early experience of seeing an adult who seem to have everything going for themselves to make that decision and sort of see their life collapse had a profound impact on what I wanted to research and study. I think that is so important and insightful. And I, I really, as we're going through this conversation, I think we'll really dig into that together. And But I just wanted to ask you, how would you define ethical culture? You know, ethical culture to me is the mission of the organization. It should be embedded in the, in the mission of the organization. It's almost a living, breathing kind of organism that you have to nurture, foster, and feed. So ethical culture in my, by my definition is the tone and the energy and the mood that you want your employees, your contractors, your clients to embody 24 hours a day. And so that takes effort. You know, it's, it's not a check the box once a year kind of activity. It's not let's have an ethical speaker once a year. It's something that you almost have to keep top of mind daily, monthly, quarterly, and annually. So that's why my definition is, is it, it extends to employees, contractors, and clients, and the public's perception of your organization. It's what you want people to embody. When they describe your organization, what are the emotions that they use when they describe it? That is super helpful. And 
I'm thinking that we've had on, on this podcast a, a number of researchers that have looked into, of course, ethics and culture and, and where we've had conversations around that so many times we think that it's just a kind of a few bad apples, but often it's not just a few bad apples, but it is a bigger issue. It is a, perhaps an issue of you need to look at the whole barrel and maybe the whole plantation as well. But I'm thinking as a part of your work in, in my perspective has been to actually look at some of these perhaps bad apples and and tell a bit of their story. But I mean, before we go into some of those stories, do you think is, is that a correct description of the picture or is it perhaps almost always something bigger? I think that's a correct description and I think it's always something bigger. And I think when you start digging into stories, what you'll notice is people often are describing the culture um, that led them to think what they did was correct or what they did would be supported or someone did support it. So those small individual stories always point to a larger, larger issue. So I think it's both of what you said. So, so fascinating. So you are a professor and forensic accounting expert and filmmaker, which I think is so fascinating. Could you enlighten the, those of us who aren't really familiar with what a forensic accounting expert does? I mean, it, it sounds very cool, but I don't perhaps fully understand it. So forensic accounting is when you're using accounting methods to understand anomalies in financial transactions. So that's what forensic accounting is. And so a forensic accounting expert just has a better understanding of that. Um, what we, when you think about what we teach and what we learn in a basic accounting class, we, we always learn and always talk about the accounting equation, assets equals liabilities plus dollars equity. And so what you start to teach people is to question, well, why would someone want to overstate assets? Why would someone want to understate liabilities? Why would someone want to overstate revenue? Why would someone want to understate expenses? And so what, when you get a good understanding of accounting, you are trying to use some of the basic accounting principles to understand some of the decisions that are made in financial transactions. And if you think about a financial statement, a balance sheet, an income statement, statement of stockholders, equity, statement of cash flows, all those statements are, are stories. They're stories that, are, that end in a number. And every number on that financial statement has a decision behind it. And so we are really trying to unravel the accounting transactions to understand all of the decisions that went into that one number. And uh, that's what forensic accounting and what a forensic accounting expert does. When I hear you talk about that, I'm, I'm just thinking, like you say, that all these numbers tell a story. And I'm just thinking about corporate values and how so often corporate values become only these kind of words on the wall. And, and, and where I used to say, I mean, what, what you really value, both from an individual perspective and, of course, also from an organizational perspective is seen in, in where you're like, allocate your time where you allocate your budget in your I mean financial decisions in your and and I'm just thinking that that from that perspective I guess as well you can also really see what an organization truly values and what an organization what values or ethical principle an organization actually operates by 
It's true, you can. And you can gain an understanding of what an organization values by looking at the numbers. But you also, something I didn't say, is you also read the notes to the financial statements because that always tells you the backstory. So the numbers tell the story. The footnotes tell the backstory. And those together can tell you what an organization values. So if you think about when you read an annual report and you read the letter from the CEO or um, a letter to our shareholders, you take that letter with the financial statements, with the notes, and you have the full picture and the full story. And that tells you a lot about what they value. And it also tells you if there are any discrepancies between what we're saying we value plus where we put our money. So you can almost compare those two things to see if it makes sense. So as a part of your storytelling and, and teaching and, and filmmaking career, you've done, I think, two documentaries and, and one of them is is called the All the Queen's Horses. And I would really just encourage anyone who hasn't watched it to, to go and watch it because it is incredibly fascinating. And I, I don't think there's there's much more interesting things you can 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 spend your time watching. So when I read about the story and heard about the story, I was kind of dumbfounded. I think it's one of those stories that you really couldn't make a movie about it if it was fictional because it just wouldn't have been believable or it would have been too unbelievable. And could you share a little bit of the origin of that story and why you decided to to share it with the world through a movie? The um, origin of the story is um, it was a headline in our local newspaper that said, City Comptroller embezzles $30 million. And the first thing I thought about was, what? How does that happen? Where, where does a person do that? And um, my second thought was, this is why everybody needs to know accounting. Because when you know basic accounting principles, it empowers everyone with a few basic questions that they can ask when they go into a meeting, whether it's a business meeting, whether it's a city council meeting, whether it's a nonprofit board meeting, there's just a couple basic questions you can ask. So I felt like this was an amazing story with four or five unbelievable components, but that's how you get people and that's how you teach and that's how you impact change. So what better way to scale a message than a movie? Um, so I decided to enroll in a film fellowship program with an organization called Cartemquin Films. And um, I was the only academic in this filmmaker program, but what I wanted to do was take this story that happened in Dixon and turn it into a documentary film because I felt like I could reach more people on, at, 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 in a scalable way than I could with an academic research paper. So that was my motivation for doing that. Could you just share just super shortly with us a little bit of kind of the core components of, of that story? So um, All the Queen's Horses is about the largest municipal fraud in United States history that happened in Dixon, Illinois. And when I talk about that, it had the components of just a, a fascinating teaching moment. Those components are the following. One, you had an unsuspecting perpetrator. Rita Cronwell graduated from high school, was a city comptroller, rose through the ranks, and was the, the number one leader of, of um, financial decisions in the town. So wouldn't suspect that she would ever hurt a fly, ever do anything wrong. So that was one component. Two, you had a super small town. So you had a town with 16,000 people 
So I'm saying that to say that everyone trusts and know everybody. You know, you felt like you grew up with these people, you know, their kids, their kids, kids, and their kids, kids, kids. So you don't question anyone. You don't necessarily feel the need for internal control. So that was another component. Third component is Rita Cronwell, this perpetrator in this fraud case and in my film, had this double life. She was one of the number one quarter horse breeders in the, in the country, the world. And so she was this municipal employee by day, but this glamorous horse breeder by night. Then you had the residents, you know, the, the residents who just put all their faith in the way the leaders were going to manage the town. So all of these things were like all going on at one time. And at the foundation was this massive fraud. So it just made for the perfect story, the perfect story. It, it absolutely does. And, and when I think about that story, I think it's that, I mean, example of the, the bad apple in a sense, or type we think of maybe Bernie Madoff or, or somebody who is very kind of intentional in their decisions. But there has to have been some red flags. There has to have been something that people kind of chose not to see. I, I think I, I interviewed Margaret Heffernan for this podcast and we talked about willful blindness, which is something she's written about. And I mean, the concept that there are things that we kind of choose not to see. What is what is the component of that kind of perhaps willful blindness in a story like this? You were right when you said that there are multiple red flags, but it's hard to see red flags when you have implicit trust. So you don't see them. I mean, Rita Cranwell owned over 400 horses, but yet had a annual salary. This is us as of 2012, $80,000. Most people that own 400 horses don't have 80, don't have, have a much bigger salary than that. She um, took four months off a year, four months. I don't know many of us that work full time to have four months of paid or even um, paid or unpaid vacation. Like you can't leave that long, but she did. Um, so that should have been odd. Um, the fact that she was, there were no segregation of duties should have been a red flag as well. So there was lots of things that were there, but when you have trust, it doesn't allow you to see the red flags in the same way because you can flip them on its head and say, well, because I know her so well, because I trust her, I don't need internal controls. It's okay that duties aren't segregated. And so that's what this, this level of, of blind faith allows you to do. And I'm thinking, I mean, based on that, about kind of this dark underbelly of trust in a sense that, and I, I think we've seen it in, in so many organizations and especially in terms of leadership. And of course, I guess Rita was a leader type of person in, 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 in that community, but but I'm, I, th I think so many times we, we have leaders and I, I've worked with some organizations like that where, there, where people have had just enormous amount of trust. And because of that, you might not have had the level of accountability or kind of systems in place. And, and, and you kind of given a lot of kind of gravity for that person to make decisions and so on. And then you realize that somewhere along the way, there has been unethical decisions and and perhaps it's sexual harassment maybe it's it's something else 
And, and I'm just thinking, how can we, because I think from one end, we want to build cultures of trust. Trust is, is, is this kind of important driver of an organization, that it is something that, I mean, we, we want to give trust. We want to be generous with trust. And at the same time, we want to make sure that we're not fooled and that we don't kind of put our organization at risk. So, so what are some of the things that you have maybe learned or seen in terms of, of how to navigate that? Well, it's definitely a dilemma. And, and I think you, you lay out the dilemma very well. But I think the best thing organizations can do is routinely and consistently tell people that we put safeguards in place to protect us all. And we don't want to ever have put our company in jeopardy because if we do, it puts your job in jeopardy. It puts your livelihood in jeopardy. It puts your family in jeopardy. So in order for none of us to be jeopardized, we put these controls in place to protect us all. And I think if you get that message out, then you won't find yourself in this point of conflict or this dilemma. Because, because you're right, you, you, you do have to trust something, some process, somebody. But if you let everyone know, we're all doing this to make sure everybody's fine, not because I'm checking up on you, but because it's a relationship, you can check up on me too. And I'm going to check up on you. You're going to check up on me. And the same goes for him and her. We're going to do that all together to make our organization together stronger. I think what happens is a lot of times um, directives and orders come down from the tone at the top. And it's felt as this is what I must do, but this is what they're not following. And again, it's this, this us versus them type of mentality that I think leads to internal destruction. We have to look at this as it's protecting us all. The same thing that applies to you applies to me, but it's when you start creating that division that makes you think that employees have to do this, but senior leadership doesn't, then you start this type of um, internal anger that can lead employees to doing things that you just don't want them to do. I think that is so incredibly helpful. And I'm thinking another aspect of this is this idea and I think perhaps especially about certain leaders or, or people that we see as people of integrity and I guess it's very possible that a lot of the people in Dixon saw Rita as as, as such a, a person and and I, I'm just thinking that we assume that certain people or perhaps a lot of people that they would never do something like that whatever that is and then Yet again, we see time and time again examples of when they're doing exactly that. So what, what are things that you would say and maybe encourage leaders, ethics, HR professionals to, to think about in terms of, I don't know, having a more honest view or assessment of humanity in a sense uh, to, to, to better protect people and organizations? I think what leaders have to do better we have to train differently. We have to educate differently. And we have to do more of an empathetic approach to how we convey information. And I think one of the problems when it comes to ethics training is it's very compliance driven. And compliance driven is not what leads to the emotional connection that you want people to have to the rules and procedures that you put in place inside your organization. Compliance mentalities don't do that. You have to 
speak to a person's heart, a person's emotions. And that's why storytelling is so important. One of the things that um, I do with my students, and even when I do workshops, is I use a film-based story approach because our minds are wired for story. And when we hear a story, even Tobias, if I said to you right now, Tobias, let me tell you a story, automatically you're going to turn on like, oh gosh, she's about to tell me something really good. But if I said, you know what, we're going to talk about double decline and depreciation right now. And you're going to be like, oh, probably. But, <laughs> <laughs> but so I think that part of what HR professionals can do so much better is find ways to speak to the heart, speak to the soul and not this check the box kind of, okay, did we do it? Yeah, everybody did it. We checked off, great. Because that's not going to get the behavior change that you want to see. That's not going to empower your employees if they see something to report it and say something. So you want to promote those internal whistleblowers if they see something to come to you and say something. You want to create that type of environment. And so you only get that by speaking to my heart not just a compliance-based approach. So I think that that's one of the key things we have to do. If you look at where we are culturally and the way that we consume content now, what are we doing all the time? We're on our phones. We're looking at videos. We're listening to podcasts. So think about how you can incorporate some of the things that we do in our daily private lives that we enjoy into your training programs because that's how you appeal to my emotional side. And then you're more likely to get a change in behavior than if you just give me a form. Did I do my annual compliance training? Yes, I did. That's not what you want. This is something that I think all of us should really make note of because I think it's such an incredibly important point. And of course, it's so, so interesting to see how you are doing that in your work and, and through filmmaking as an avenue to do that. And uh, something else that I'm thinking about is that in terms of these stories, I find that so many times when, when we talk about values, maybe not code of conduct, but values as such, we want it to be inspiring. We want it to be uplifting. We want it to be kind of these kind of moments of inspiration and, and kind of create a good vibe. But at the same time, I'm thinking that perhaps sometimes the stories that are most meaningful are the stories that will also help bring up the tensions that are so many times so hard for us to to navigate in our work life, the tensions, perhaps like Richard Bystrong that we've had on this podcast to, uh, yeah, you perhaps know him. And, and, and I mean, he talks about the, the tension between uh, complying uh, with the code of conduct and the pressure to succeed. And, and what's, what's your perspective of that in terms of the, the type of stories that we tell? Yeah. You know, I find Richard's story to be very moving. And um, I think, you need more of the Richard types and really less of the Madoff types because I'm gonna tell you why. Everybody can see themselves as Richard. Most of us don't see ourselves as Madoff, as a multi-millionaire, almost billionaire, mover and shaker financier. A lot of us don't see us as that, but we see ourselves in Richard. We see ourselves in the kind of corporate growth he experienced, we see that. And so you need relatable stories. You need the Sharon Watkins of the world. You need the Diane Catani, people that come to my class of the world. But you might not need um, 
Bernard Evers. You know, they have their place in their role, but I think you need to counterbalance them with the, the masses. You know, it's almost like in higher education, if we only use Harvard and Stanford and Wharton as the examples, more schools are not like that than are. More people go to schools that are not Ivy League or Ivy like than do. So you have to make sure you're relating to your, your population. So I think we need more of the richer stories and, and, and for companies to feel comfortable and, and recognizing that there's a lot to learn from Richard. I um, am part of a, one of the um, experts on a new show on CNBC called Super Heist. And um, this past week, um, the episode was about four college kids who decided that they were gonna try to steal some rare books from a university library, Transylvania University. And the rare book collection that they were trying to steal was valued at around $12 million. And so I posted on LinkedIn that this episode is coming up, catch me on the episode. And so after the episode aired, what a couple people started to say was, I can't believe that these kids were given a platform, shame on everyone for promoting them. Well, actually, in actuality, in my opinion, we need to see these stories so we can learn, A, what went wrong? What was the decision-making? What were the red flags missed? And what was the investigation like? There's so much that we can learn from this. So let's not be scared to explore more. But if you take the position of, I don't want to give this a platform, then you're closing off the ability to learn from it. And those are the powerful ways that we learn and transmit information to other people. And I, I think that's such an important aspect that we do we do need to learn. And, and even though uh, a certain story might seem kind of removed from our own reality, or we think we would never do something like that, I think there's a lot of stories. I mean, if we, for example, look at a company like France Telecom and, and where they had this wave of suicides because of, of, of pressure to kind of try to get people to, to voluntarily or kind of yeah involuntarily but voluntarily leaving leaving the company and 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 like uh like i mean they they said i mean you we don't care how you leave whether through the door or through the window and and i'm i'm just thinking about that in all of these stories that there are things that we can learn and that we need to learn because even in the kind of smaller decisions, even in the smaller situations and settings that we find ourselves in our work life, in our workplace, we will see red flags. There will be things that that we might agree to because of certain pressure or because we want to fit in or whatever it is. And suddenly we find ourselves blind to our own behavior and doing things that we would never think. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking back at things that I did in a certain cultural context that I that I can't really understand the person who made those decisions and yet that was me and what's yeah not not much of a question but but what's what's your reflection on that you know it well you often what I think is powerful that you just said is when you heard it it immediately went back to you thinking about I could never do this, right? That was your first, and that's what we want to happen. 
we want you to have that self-reflection, that internal self-reflection before you actually find yourself in that situation. So that's why this is so powerful. And why I think, you know, going back to your original question of what's the message to HR executives and, and corporate executives, use those stories. That's your power. And because you want everyone to leave your workshop, leave whatever video that they just looked at and have a self-reflective moment. Because if everybody's having those moments and you're, you're on your path to an ethical organization, a consistently, a consistent ethical organization, not just a drop in the hat, you know, it happened this time and then next year we're crazy, you know, but consistently because we want the consistency of the behavior. I love that. I love that. So you, you have a fascinating TED talk on how whistleblowers shape history. And, and in your talk, you describe how you encourage your students to report when they see signs of unethical or illegal behavior to essentially become whistleblowers. But you also share how you feel conflicted about sending that message. Why is that? I feel conflicted because I don't know that they will always be supported. It's an uphill battle to go against what what people may not agree with or be the, the only voice coming forward. And so there are certain things you have to have put in place before you can be take on something like that. For example, what if you decide to be a whistleblower and you lose your job? Do you have the savings that you need to fight it? How do you pay for legal counsel? How do you take the career hit? How old are you? So there's things that can happen um, that you don't even ever expect to happen. And so I get worried that, that I tell my students, this is the right thing to do, but yet it's gonna be tough when you do it. You know, it's not like um, the Olympics, like, you know, you, you train for the Olympics, it's hard, but at the end of the day, you, you could receive a gold medal and then there are endorsements and then there's all this love um, from your country, from your fellow athletes, you know, there's a big payout, non-financial and financial could be at the end. Whistleblowing doesn't have that kind of payout. Even though you might've done the right thing, the end could be very grim. And so that's where my conflict comes when I say to sending this message to my students is to how can I in good faith say this is what they should be doing when I know how hard it's going to be for them when they do it, especially if they're young. On a recent episode, we had Bianca Goodsen, uh, a whistleblower from South Africa, uh, together with Mary Inman and whistle whistleblower lawyer. And and Bianca, I mean, told the the incredible, I mean, such a tragic story of, of how she she lost her job and, and how she's basically been without. I mean, she hasn't been able to, to get a new job for years because of, of really bringing things to light and and yet kind of yet celebrated as a hero by a lot of people but but unable to get a job but sometimes maybe not celebrated by the the right people you know you you sort of look at in um, the united states i don't know for our our listeners here if they followed um oh goodness now the name um just left me hold on i'm tell you uh he's the former uh nfl player that um, decided he was going to start bending his knee. Colin Kaepernick? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And if you think about Colin, Colin decided, I'm going to start this movement to bring more awareness to social justice or 
injustice to African-Americans in the United States. No team has picked him up though, still to this day. And so, you know, although he's not a whistleblower, his experience is very similar to a whistleblower where all these people have um, supported him and praised him. And yet his craft, his gift, his passion is football and no one has picked up and said, you know what? You did the right thing. We're going to sign you again because we know you're great and we know you did the right thing. That's sort of similar to what happens to some whistleblowers. So how do you encourage someone to become that when you see what could happen to them when they decide to? Again, you've talked to a lot of people who have reported wrongdoing. And I've heard you say that still a lot of them are so grateful that they made that decision. And even though it cost them something, they're still grateful for that. Could you could you speak to that? Why why that is? Yeah, I've um I've had that experience with a lot of people I've interviewed, and I think there's something about just um how they settle with them with themselves when they know that something is going on. They had to sort of get it off their chest. They live better, even though there are these other obstacles in their lives. They feel like this is they're better off by doing by doing it. And so I, I, um, I think I'm a little envious of their ability to, to, to settle there. And I would question, could I do it? And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by them, so encouraged by them, and I sort of marvel at them. And I'm thinking that, that it's so easy to talk about things like integrity. And I think it is one of those most used values, most common corporate values. And yet... It is, I'm thinking sometimes it is really painful and it is really incredibly hard and it costs a lot. Well, and I think it's easy to talk about when it hasn't been tested. It's when it's tested that makes you say, okay, well, what are your values? What, what is your corporate integrity? As long as it's not tested, it's fine. But then when, you are, when you're sitting in the boardroom and you find out that if we put this safety measure in, it's going to cost us X millions of dollars, but the likelihood of it happening are 5%, but the 5% is death, you know, then that those values are tested. And so what do you do? So in terms of your work and, and your research, and we talk about how integrity is, is, uh, yeah, we, we can only really see it when it's tested. And I, I'm thinking, and, and you just mentioned one example of how it sometimes is tested from an kind of accounting financial perspective. Are there other common ways that you see that it is tested in organizations? This really comes back to training and workshops. And so something that I think is always good um, to do is hack your system. So ask your employees or your executives, give them the scenarios of if how could you manipulate or how could you hack your system. And I think that that can give you an, uh, an, an opening into the ways that integrity could be tested in your organization, because how are you going to respond to it? You know, how are you going to respond if a person does whistleblow to you? Are you going to isolate them? Are you going to be angry at them? Are you going to demote them? And so give some scenarios so you can sort of pressure test how people will respond. I don't know if that totally answers your question, but that's that's my best answer. 
Yeah, and I, I think that is a fantastic advice. And I, I love that concept. And to all our, our listeners, I would really encourage that. I think sometimes when we work with dilemmas and things like that, they might be things that we kind of we have created and we have defined. But but the idea of actually hacking your system of, of letting your team members uh, your leaders think about where are our vulnerabilities, where are the things where it becomes questionable, where it becomes tough, where, like you said, that 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 if I actually choose to speak up here, what type of reaction am I going to get? And and I, I was just the 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 other day uh, talking to an organization where they were going to go do a, a part of an kind of analysis of their culture, and one of the things that they talked about was that part of their employees were a little bit kind of scared about whether it would be anonymous. And, and they said that that was something that was really kind of high on their agenda. And I, and I just asked them, so is there a reason for that? Can you think of something? Can you think of one event or, or something that might have kind of created that fear that even if you say it's anonymous, that they don't totally trust that? And I think it's so important for us to actually ask those type of questions and, and just see what are the vulnerabilities. And, and often I think the vulnerabilities are found in stories and, and in events that have happened. And I think also many times we don't, we can't really deal with them until we address them, until we kind of pick them up and actually talk about what happened and, and try to try to rectify it or, 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 or kind of do some type of restorative work, or at least, I mean, admit that it was wrong and show some humility about it. What's, what's your perspective on that? I think that, I think that what you said is exactly right. Um, I think that it's why story is so powerful because you get to hear different people's true responses um, when they hear a story. And that, that gives your listener, your employees, um, an understanding of safety, because that's really what they're talking about. They're talking about, is this a safe space? Are you a safe person? And if you, if they get the sense that you are, then, or that the, that the organization is, then you're, you're more likely to find people willing to report, willing to share, willing to say something, but it's when that people don't feel safe. And that's really all that we're talking about is safety. You know, and when I think, unfortunately, when we talk about safety, we talk about it from a health perspective, but there's other forms of safety that we really have to think about that employees are looking for. And when it comes to these kinds of um, emotional or behavioral kinds of situations, there's a level of safety that I think we overlook. And that's where storytelling allows people to gauge the safetyness factor within a person or within their organization. Thank you so much for that. And I mean, there are so many things that I that I wanted to talk to you about and and but we're we're running a bit out of time. But of course, we, we've talked about the uh, Reed Art uh, Cromwell example. And but if we think about another example, like Wells Fargo, where it's so kind of clear, of course, it is. A, we see fraud and 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 so on. But I think it is very clear that it's not just a bad apple or a few or 5000 bad apples but that it was a bigger story. And, and what are some things as you, from a forensic accounting expert kind of perspective that you see in a, in a story like Wells Fargo? A story like Wells Fargo should allow all of us to look back and think about what is the tone that we're setting in our organization. Because the people that were 
fired were actually the people doing the right thing, but they were doing the right thing against this negative tone that had been set by top level. So I think what Wells Fargo teaches all of us is we all need to check in and make sure that the message that we are conveying is actually the message that we want people to put in operate, put to, to, to operationalize. Because opening up accounts when people haven't asked for accounts just to make numbers look good is not what anyone should be doing. That should never be the message that we are leaving people with. And if people go against that and they're fired, that's the wrong tone um, to send out publicly. But what was the tone that it started with? So I think that's what we leave Wells Fargo thinking is what is the message that we're sending people? Because maximizing shareholder value in the wrong way is never what you want to do. So, so true. So one of my two final questions here, I'm, I'm asked you in the beginning what how you would define uh, an ethical culture, but I wanted to ask you something that is perhaps rather similar, but, but still that I think is an important perspective and something that we're very passionate about on this podcast. What is a culture of integrity to you? Culture of integrity is when everyone feels comfortable bringing their honest self into an organization. And that is embraced and supported and encouraged. Thank you for that definition. I love it. <laughs> That's amazing. So Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time. And how can people connect with you and, and follow your work? So you can connect with me. You can email me at kpope2 at depaul.edu. I have a website, kellyrichmanpope.com. You can go um, watch All the Queen's Horses. It's on YouTube. If you just search All the Queen's Horses on YouTube, you'll find it. And um, I hope to join you again in a conversation. So those are all the ways you can connect me. Connect with me on uh, Twitter at Kelly R. Pope is my handle. And I'm everywhere. <laughs> She's everywhere. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks. I'll see you later, okay? Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.